That blast-off song's a that's that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> I think uh, I was about to blast off then. Okay, well let's bow in prayer, shall we? <clears throat> uh, gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that through your word and spirit that you would inform our minds and that you would transform our hearts. Uh, help us to see more clearly of your dealings with your people over history. Help us to uh, see and uh, reflect on something of human uh, sinfulness. And help us to see, Lord God, the work that you've done, particularly in King Jesus, that we might live with him as our Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This time last year, many of us were stunned, weren't we? Uh, we were stunned by the toppling of an Australian Prime Minister. And I think that no matter what side of the political fence that we sit on, uh, whether we felt happy about what happened or unhappy about what happened, the reality is that the speed and the clinical precision of what took place uh, was stunning uh, and it uh, took us a while to just come to terms with it. As the anniversary of that event clicked over this week, uh, the media certainly relished in the whole kind of soap opera of uh, what's been going on. Uh, indeed, it seems to me that sometimes we're more fascinated by the soap opera of politics than we are interested in the actual issues that our politicians need to be grappling in for the sake of our nation and our world. Um, think about the nightly news. Uh, do we watch the news for news or do we watch it for entertainment? It's entertainment. Uh, we're fascinated by this cheap form of entertainment. We switch on the nightly news to uh, see what the latest episode in the soap opera is. Uh, to see what the latest opinion polls have to say, which person is the preferred Prime Minister, uh, which person is the preferred opposition leader, uh, whether the current leaders are less popular than the leaders that they deposed, and so on. And the media loves to speculate on what's going to be the next uh, episode in the whole saga. The rumours, the backroom back number crunching, uh, about who might be leader next. Now, of course, uh, politics hasn't just become a soap opera since June 23rd of last year. Uh, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what period of history we look at, political life has always had the right ingredients. You've got ambition, power, the occasional glimpse of courage, conspiracy, uh, deceit, uh, the toppling of leaders and so on. And when we think about uh, the politics of this world, uh, we actually see that it's not a bad description of what we see in the book of Two Kings. Uh, because the events of Two Kings, uh, if you'd like to have that open up in your Bibles on page 271, uh, the events of two kings, even though they happened between 2,700 and 2,800 years ago, uh, they really are very much 
a mirror of our society today. 2 Kings chapters 14 and 15 has a lot to say about political intrigue, betrayal, conspiracy and even assassinations. When we talk about political assassinations these days, we don't talk about assassinations using the sword. Uh, But in those days, it was assassination by sword. So let's have a look at uh, 2 Kings 14 and 15. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to uh, take us, give us a br- uh, an overview of these two chapters and draw out some of the implications for us as Christians today. And the first episode is in chapter 14, verses 1 to 22. In your outlines there, I've called it uh, Israel versus Judah versus Israel. Uh, A brief recap, remember God's people had been split into two kingdoms, uh, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. And uh, what we see in these verses is that the main characters are uh, King Amaziah of Judah and King Jehoash of Israel. Um, Throughout uh, two kings, we've seen times when uh, the nations of Israel and Judah have gone into battle against other nations. But here, we see that they go into battle against each other. Now, here's how that happened. In verse 7, if you can have a look at that, King Amaziah had gone to war against the nation of Edom. Now, you remember the Edomites, talked about them last week, they were just the descendants of Esau and they had always been a thorn in the side for Judah. So he goes into battle against Edom and he enjoys a stunning victory against them. And he thought, well, since I'm on a roll, I might as well now go and declare war against the king of Israel. Uh, we don't know why he thought that. Maybe it was a border dispute or something rather. But in verse 8, he challenged Israel's king, King Jehoaz, to come and meet him face to face. Now, that's a, that's a declaration of war. And you know what? Amaziah should have really listened to what his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather had to say. Can you guess who his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather might have been? Any ideas? King Solomon. And Solomon wrote the Proverbs. And again, I, you know, I love the Proverbs. And in Proverbs chapter 16, what is it that goes before destruction? Pride. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And uh, so King Amaziah, was, he was on a roll because he'd defeated uh, the, uh, the, the Edomites. And so he thought he'd, he was encouraged, he thought he'd go into battle against Israel. Pride goes before destruction, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, in verses 11 through to 14, uh, the king of Israel defeated Judah. Uh, he uh, invaded Jerusalem. Uh, he, uh, he, he plundered the temple and he took hostages 
including King Amaziah himself. So this is a kind of like a bit of a low point in relations between Israel and Judah. And we don't know how uh, King Jehoash, the king of Israel, died. But in verse 19, we're told that King Amaziah was assassinated. That's how he met his end. And both of those kings were succeeded by their sons. Now, during this week, uh, I um, looked up the list of all of the premiers of New South Wales since 1856. Now, can you, can you guess why you bothered to look at that list? Well, I was actually interested to know, and just to clarify in my own mind, how many premiers have we had in New South Wales in the past six years? Anyone know the answer to that? Well, if you include the latter part of Bob Carr's uh, time, we've had six premiers, uh, sorry, five premiers in six years. That's a staggering number. That's, that's pure soap. Uh, that is a great soap opera. We know about soap operas in New South Wales. Well, friends, after this war between Israel and Judah, the rest of 2 Kings 14 and 15 is a soap opera. <laughs> And what, what it does is it, it lists the kings of each kingdom for us. Uh, it tells us who they were, uh, what their name was, how long they ruled for, what they were like, and so on. And it's a list which it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, to be honest, for, for a couple of reasons. And we didn't read chapter 15 in Alyssa's reading earlier on, um, and that's far more complex than chapter 14. Uh, it, it is so rich in Hebrew names, and they're kind of difficult for us to pronounce, aren't they? And to remember, and so many of them sound the same. That's one reason why the list is difficult for us. The other reason that this list in chapters 14 and 15 is difficult for us is because it keeps on switching from one kingdom to the other and you kind of got to really concentrate on which kingdom is it talking about with respect to which particular king. So what I've done on your outlines and what I'm going to do in this talk is I've split the kings between the two kingdoms and on your outlines there you'll see I've added in some additional information there as well. But I'd like us to take a look first at the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, when Jehoash died, uh, his son Jeroboam II became king. Remember, there was another guy called Jeroboam. He was the first king of the northern kingdom. He rebelled against uh, Rehoboam in the south. Well, this is not him. This is Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoash. I'll read you just a what it says about Jeroboam as an example of how this list works. Uh, we go to chapter 14, verses 23 to 25. Let me read that for you. Everyone following that? Chapter 14, verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. 
He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hepher. Okay, so that's an example of how this list works. Uh, it tells us who the king was, how long he reigned for, and so on. And in some ways, we can see that uh, King Jeroboam was actually a great success uh, in worldly terms. Uh, it was under his rule that uh, there were some military victories, and he managed to claw back some of the territory that Israel had lost to some of its neighbours. Uh, in fact, uh, when you look at a map of this, you can see that under his rule that Israel had not had it so good since the days of Solomon. But it was downhill after him. Uh, his son Zechariah became king. Now, do you remember from last week we looked at King Jehu? And King Jehu was commended by God because he was the guy who obliterated Baal worship in the northern kingdom. Remember there was a story about you know, how he uh, killed off the, all of the des descendants of Ahab and killed off the prophets of Baal and so on? Um, he got the thumbs up from God and God said that uh, his descendants, the descendants of Jehu, would sit on the throne of Israel until the fourth generation. Well, Zechariah is the fourth generation. And God only allowed him to sit on the throne for six months. And from here on in, uh, the list of kings of Israel begins to look like the premiers of New South Wales. Um, Zechariah was assassinated uh, by a man by the name of Shalom, who became king. And that, what that meant, of course, is that a line is drawn across the, the uh, dynasty of Jehu. That now ends with uh, this fellow Shalom becoming king. Um, Shalom was assassinated 30 days later by a fellow by the name of Menahem. Um, the Hebrew actually says that, that he only ruled for a total of 30 days. Menahem lasted 10 years, and then he got to hand the throne on to his son, who was Pekahiah. And Pekahiah ruled for two years, and then he was assassinated by a fellow by the name of Pekah. Um, Pekah lasted longer than most of them. He lasted for 20 years, but he met a grisly end as well. He was assassinated by Hoshea. Now, it's not a pretty story, is it? Uh, how, was each, how were these kings deposed? They were, if they didn't hand on to their son, they were assassinated. And how many of them were assassinated? Four of them were assassinated out of, out of seven. Right? And how did they, what was the weapon of choice for assassinations? The sword. Who'd want to be king? These days we use different weapons for political assassinations, don't we? We use opinion polls and focus groups and 
party factions and ultimately the, the ballot box, of course. Uh, there's been a few leaders in North Africa and uh, the Middle East who've been deposed in recent times, hasn't there? Uh, they call it the Arab Spring. Do you know what they reckon have been the most effective weapons in these particular uprisings in the Middle East and North Africa at the moment? Anyone want to have a guess? Facebook, Twitter, mobile phones, uh, YouTube, and WikiLeaks. You got it. You got it. It's a different world, isn't it? But it's the same world. It's the same world. In 2 Kings 14 and 15, there is one thing which stands out. And I think we could say that if a, uh, a secular historian was recording the lives of these kings, they would have given us far more detail about uh, the military successes or defeats, the uh, economics and so on. But, but here our author just says, look, if you want to go and check that out, just go to the annals of the kings of Israel. Because he's not so much interested in those things Instead, we're told about the spiritual life and the spiritual failure of each of the kings. In every case, in the northern kingdom, the author tells us that the king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, every case, I should add, except for Shalom, it doesn't say what he did. You know why? He only lasted 30 days. Uh, second shortest, uh, the second shortest king uh, that's recorded for us. The other one lasted for seven days. That was Zimri. So what was this evil that they all did? I think I'd be true to say that it's more a case of what evil did they not do uh, this, by the way, was the time in history when God opened the floodgates in terms of flooding Israel with prophets. Let me tell you which of the Old Testament uh, prophets lived at this time. There was Joel, Amos, Jonah. He even gets mentioned in chapter 14, verse 25. Did you notice that? Hosea. Micah and Isaiah. In, in the period covered just by these two chapters, God gave all of those prophets. They all lived at this time. And each one of them preached against the idolatry, the immorality, the greed and the oppression of Israel. Israel is supposed to be different to all of the other nations, but instead they'd become the same as the other nations. But the key issue was this. None of these kings turned away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Every one of them. In chapter 14, verse 24, Jeroboam the second did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. In chapter 15, verse 9, Zechariah did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. 
in chapter 15, verse 18, Menahem did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. In chapter 15, verse 24, Pekahiah. And in chapter 15, 28, Pekah. None of them turned away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That is, they all encouraged people not to worship the true God, not to go south of the border to Jerusalem to the temple. They all encouraged their people to worship statues of cows in Dan and Bethel. They actively encouraged that. And friends, when life is not lived with God at the centre of life, when we replace God with and worship idols, whether statues of cows or bricks and mortar, the great Australian idol, when we replace God, life will not be as God intended. And we put our trust in other things, other things which let us down, other things which are transitory, other things which fail. For example, take a look at King Menahem. Um, in chapter 15, go to chapter 15, verses 19 to 20, the powerful king of Assyria invaded Israel. Um, there he's called Pul. Uh, his other name was Tiglath-Pileser III. He invaded the land of Israel. Now, faced with a threat like that, what should have King Menahem done? Who should he have turned to? Who should he have put his trust in? Who is it that the kings of Israel are supposed to turn to at times such as that? God. But what did he put his trust in instead? Who did he turn to? Have a look at chapter 15, verses 19 to 20. I'll read it for you. In verse 19, Then Paul, king of Assyria, invaded the land, and Menahem gave him a thousand talents of silver to gain his support and to strengthen his own hold on the kingdom. Menahem exacted this money from Israel. Every wealthy man had to contribute 50 shekels of silver to be given to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria withdrew and stayed in the land no longer. Do you see what he did? Who did he put his trust in? He paid off the king of Assyria. Paid him off. He gave him, if you look at the footnotes of the NIV, he gave him 34 tons of silver, which he exacted from all of the people of the land. Taxed them for it. Um, at close of trade Friday... Uh, on the Australian markets, that was worth 36 million bucks. <laughs> right? Now, what's he putting his trust in? He's putting his trust in silver and he's putting his trust for his protection in a pagan king. Fat load of good that did him um, because a little bit later on in verse 29, the same king of Assyria, there named Tiglath-Pileser III, in verse 29, he came back and he invaded again and this time he actually took people, uh, the upper class people, took them 
out of, out of Israel and deported them into Assyria. Now, that was a sign of something even much worse that was to yet to come, which we'll read about next week. But the, the, uh, the, the bottom line is, uh, and it's a preview of next week, is that the northern kingdom was about to end. It was about to finish forever. Okay, so that was all happening up north. What was going on down south? Let's have a look at the list of kings of Judah. In one sense, uh, things down south were much more stable. Instead of seven kings during this time frame, they only had three kings, Amaziah, Azariah and Jotham. Um, so what were all of these kings like? Well, whereas the kings of Israel got the thumbs down, all three of the kings of Judah, we are told, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Amaziah in chapter 14, verse 3, Azariah in chapter 15, verse 3, Jotham in chapter 15, verse 34, they all did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this is starting to sound a little bit more um, positive, isn't it? This is starting to sound like there's a little bit of hope that these guys did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Except for one thing. We keep on being told that none of them removed the high places. Let me show you an example of that. Chapter 14, verse 3. We'll have a look at Amaziah. Chapter 14, verse 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. In everything he followed the example of his father Joash. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and to burn incense there. Uh, well, what's all that about? A high place... Mm. it's a hill <laughs> and on top of the hill uh, they would build an altar an altar to a pagan god and these were all over the place in Judah scattered all around the countryside um, even King Solomon we're told uh, in chapter 23 verse 13 even Solomon had built some of these high places so that his pagan wives could go there and worship their detestable gods. And they were still around. Uh, the kings themselves may not have been worshipping there, but other people were burning, sacrifice, uh, burning incense and sacrificing to these pagan gods at these high places. And so, on the one hand, it sounds okay that they're doing right in the eyes of the Lord, but they're not doing the job properly. It doesn't sound all that great. And the question, therefore, is what hope is there? 
Friends, within this tangled mess of politics, there is a glimmer of hope. And it is found in the kings of Judah, in Amaziah, Azariah and Jotham. Because each of these kings was a direct descendant of King David. The Davidic line was not broken. Remember God had once made a promise to David. He'd said to him in 2 Samuel 7 that, that one of his descendants would sit on his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. That it would be an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom which would be a blessing to all peoples, a kingdom which would be ruled by the perfect Davidic king. Who is this king? Well, what we see in the book of two kings, it's not one of these fellows. <laughs> it's not one of these guys. It's got to be something else. The story of the kings of, of, of Judah and of Israel pushes us in the direction of looking to some other fulfilment, to some greater fulfilment of the perfect Davidic king. And so when we come to the New Testament, the very first verse in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse, verse 1, it reads, A record of the family tree of Jesus Christ, the son of the son of David. The failure of these kings is it's not just it's not just a political soap opera. Rather, it tells us that something else was needed. It tells us that ultimately God would need to deal with the cause of the problem. That human sin would need to be dealt with once and for all. And so 700 years later, God himself would come in the person of his son. And there, on an altar that was shaped like a cross, built on a high place, hung a king. A king who was scarred by a crown that was made of thorns, a king who came not to take the life of another, but to give his life as a ransom for many. To pay the penalty for all of our guilt, for all of our rebellion, for all of our idolatry, for all of our sin against God. So that no matter who we are or what shameful things we've done in life, that if we trust in this king, in King Jesus, then his death will wipe our slate clean. We can be forgiven. We can start again. We can belong to his kingdom. A kingdom which reaches into all of eternity. A kingdom which is ruled by the perfect Davidic king. You see, at one level, uh, two kings bears a remarkable resemblance to our world today. I mean, the names, the places, the methods have changed. But despite our many advances, the human heart remains the same. 
people still lust for power. Leaders still need to watch their backs. And God is not loved. God is not trusted in national life. But the issue for us is our personal life. I just want to ask you the question, what about you? What about your life? Have you placed your trust in King Jesus, the perfect Davidic king who came to give his life for you? Do you belong to his kingdom? Do you name Jesus as your king? That, I think, is the message of 2 Kings chapters 14 and 15. It speaks to us of the mess of the political life in Israel and Judah at that time, but it points us forward to the future king, to the fulfilment of all of God's promises in King Jesus. So let's pray. Father, as we reflect on 2 Kings 14 and 15, we see that in many ways it does mirror the world in which we still live. Father, we see in our world that there is ambition, corruption, deceit, turmoil. And yet in the midst of all of that, we know that there is one anchor that uh, stands firm, and that is King Jesus and the kingdom that he has brought into effect through his death and his resurrection. Father, we pray for ourselves that we would be people who live in that kingdom, that we trust in Jesus, and Father, that we live with him as our ruler, for he is the perfect Davidic king. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.